question, the very difficult question that Vidura asked? What? A few days ago? Yes, is it the fault of the jiva or the Lord that the jiva is suffering? The Lord is transcendental, the jiva is transcendental, why is there suffering? So yesterday, Maitreya answered in regard to? In regard to the Lord. In regard to the Lord. So today he's going to answer in regard to the jiva, and the word humsa here means the jiva, is indicating the jiva. Yeah, any other words here that you can recognize? Shiva is head, and swa means your own, your own head. So swa shiva is your own head. Okay, any other words here? Atma, which means the self. Any others? Hmm? Chedana. Chedana, okay, what does chedana mean? Cutting. Good. Artha. Artha. Everybody should know what Artha means. What does Artha mean? Distress. No. Distress. No. Purpose. Purpose. Yes. What do we use, the, what we commonly use the word Artha for? Yes, yes, what? Dharma, Artha, Kama, Moksha. And what does Artha in that sense mean? What does Prabhupada usually translate Arta as in Dharma, Arta, Kama, Moksha? Hmm? Economic development. In economic, is that what you said? Economic development. Something good, something valuable. Okay. And then we have Vina. What does Vina mean? Not the Vina you play. <laughs> it means without. So you have Arta, Vina means what? Without purpose, without value. Okay. Let's go through the word for word. Yet. Yeah. Thus. Thus. Artena. Artena. A purpose or meaning. A purpose or meaning. Vina. Without. Amusya. Amusya. Such a one. Such a one. Humshaha. Of the living entity. Of the living entity. Atmapiparya. Yeah. Upset about self-identification. Upset about so appears. This is another one we should know. Upadrastu. What, what does drastu mean? To see. Upadrastu. Of the superficial onlooker. Swashiraha. Own head. Chedana adhika. Cutting off. Okay, anybody tell me what they what doesn't have a little gizmo to read the verse? Can anyone... Oh, is the translation up? Oh, it's already up there. Okay, translation. The living entity is in distress regarding his self-identity. He has no factual background, like a man who dreams that he sees his head cut off. Can you watch your own head getting cut off? No. No. I mean, you could if you're in your subtle body watching your ghost body. But generally, you can't watch your head getting cut off. Report. I'm pretty sure that in the beginning here, Shiro Prabhupada's talking about an experience that he had in school. I'm pretty sure. 
A teacher in school once threatened his pupil that he would cut off the pupil's head and hang it on the wall so that the child would see how his head had been cut off. <laughs> if we did that in modern schools, we'd be arrested. In problems day, that was, that was okay. The child became frightened and stopped his mischief. Again, I'm pretty sure this is something that happened directly to Shula Prabhupada when he was in school. That the teacher said, if you don't stop your mischief, I'm going to cut off your head and hang it on the wall and you have to look at it. Similarly, the miseries of the pure soul and the destruction of his self-identification are managed by the external energy of the Lord, which controls those mischievous living entities who want to go against the will of the Lord. So the external energy is controlling the rebellious living entities by making it appear that their heads are being cut off and threatening that your head's going to be cut off. And you'll watch it. And you'll be able to see your head on the wall. Or hang it on the wall. You'll see, oh, okay, I'll <laughs> Actually, there is no bondage or misery for the living entity, nor does he ever lose his pure knowledge. That is quite a statement. Actually, there is no bondage or misery for the living entity, nor does he ever lose his pure knowledge. In his pure consciousness, when he thinks a little seriously about his position, he can understand that he is eternally subordinate to the mercy of the Supreme and that his attempt to become one with the Supreme Lord is a false illusion. Life after life, the living entity falsely tries to lord it over material nature and become the lord of the material world, but there is no tangible result. Do we have any tangible result? Anybody here become the lord of the material world? At last, when frustrated... <coughs> He gives up his material activities and tries to become one with the Lord and speculate with much jugglery of words, but without success. These activities are performed under the dictation of the illusory energy. The experience is compared to the experience of one having his head cut off in a dream. The man whose head has been cut off also sees that his head has been cut off. If a person's head is severed, he loses his power to see. Therefore, if a man sees that his head has been cut off, it means he thinks like that in hallucination. Similarly, a living entity is eternally subordinate to the Supreme Lord, and he has this knowledge with him. But artificially, he thinks that he is God himself, and that although he is God, he has lost his knowledge due to Maya. So this is one theory that explains the, how the suffering is not real. We're saying that's not what the Bhagavatam means. The Bhagavatam doesn't mean that conception. We'll talk about that this conception has no meaning, just as there is no meaning to seeing one's head being cut off. This is the process by which knowledge is covered. And because this artificial, rebellious condition of the living entity gives him all troubles, it is to be understood that he should take to his normal life as a devotee of the Lord and be relieved from the misconception of being God. The so-called liberation of thinking oneself God is that last reaction of avidya by which the living entity is entrapped. The conclusion is that a living entity deprived of eternal transcendental service to the Lord becomes illusion in so many ways. Now, this is the sad reality. Okay, I'm not going to be a servant of the Lord. I'm going to try to become God. And then Prophet says, even in his conditional life, he is the eternal servant of the Lord. So now, no, we don't become the Lord of Maya. And we're still Krishna's servant. His servitude under the spell of illusory maya is also a manifestation of his eternal condition of service. Because he has rebelled against the service of the Lord, 
He is therefore put in the service of the Maya. He is still serving, but in a perverted manner. Are we all serving the material energy? Right? Material energy says sleep. How long can you stay awake? <laughs> you ever tried that? You ever tried to purposely go without sleep for a long period of time? At a certain point, you just simply fall asleep. Right. It's so bad that people under the modes of nature, when material energy says get angry, they get angry. Right. When he wants to get out of the service under material bondage, he next desires to become one with the Lord. This is another illusion. The best course, therefore, is to surrender unto the Lord and thus get rid of the illusory maya for good, as confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita 714. The living entity is in distress regarding his self-identity. He has no factual background like a man who dreams that he sees his head. There's no, there's no purpose, there's no meaning. It's not really happening. Well, we want to explain why we're suffering. Everybody here has some suffering? Who here has some suffering in their life? Oh, that's sad, huh? So if we want to try to explain, does it seem like we deserve it? Well, let's be honest. Does it feel like we deserve it? Yes. No. Yes? Oh, you're very honest. <laughs> Most of us don't feel like we deserve it. We think I'm really a good person, and I've done so many good things in life, and now even I'm trying to be a devotee, and what's going on? I mean, I, I remember very clearly, you know, when I was and new in the Hare Krishna movement, praying to Krishna, I'm chanting 16 rounds and going to Mamalarji every day, following the four principles, why did I get sick? <laughs> I'd be good, I'd be good. I'd had a long um, series of email correspondence. With, with one person who kept asking this over and over again, you know, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? Krishna's just punishing me unnecessarily. So there's a, and earlier in the Bhagavatam, there's a discussion between Maharaj Brickett and Dharma the bull, where Maharaj Brickett asks Dharma in the form of a bull, why are you suffering? Now, it would seem obvious why he was suffering. There was a person there beating him. Right? And somebody's, well, you can see why I'm suffering. Somebody's hitting me with a stick and breaking my legs. But Norman the Bull said, no, if you identify the perpetrator, if you say, ah, that person is responsible for my suffering, then you become as guilty as the perpetrator. And Norman the Bull gives different explanations. He says, nobody's really sure why we're suffering. He said, there's different theories. So one of his theories is, we just don't know. We just can't figure it out. It's inscrutable. We just have no idea. This is the point of view of the agnostics. The agnostics said, well, we, we just don't know. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God, maybe there's a big man. We just have no idea why we're suffering. So what do you do then if you just have no idea? What's your practical way of dealing with suffering if you don't have any idea why you're suffering. Huh? You just just tolerate it. Just tolerate it. I mean, a lot of people think like that today. That we don't know why we're suffering. We're just suffering. and Just try to find the good in life. Focus on the good. Don't focus on the bad. And just try to get through it. And 
You know, but the suffering has no meaning. We have this artha vina here, that there's no meaning. So they say there's no meaning to it, it's just inscrutable. All right, then there's those who say our suffering is coming from the laws of nature which arise by chance. So what group of people are saying this today? The voidist, yes, definitely. And who else? What particular kind of materialists? Atheists. Hmm? Atheists, yes. And they, what is their philosophy that they're propounding in the world today? That there's laws of material nature which were risen by chance and somehow these laws cause suffering. God is dead. Yeah, but God, this is the main philosophy all over the world. Evolution. Evolution. So they're saying that there's just somehow or other there's laws. We don't know where they came from. They're just they're just there. You know, there was all, one time there was nothing, and then there was a chunk. It just appeared in the nothing. I mean, that's our normal experience, right? That when you have nothing, all of a sudden chunks appear in it. So you know, there was this tiny, infinitely small, infinitely dense chunk. And for no particular reason, it exploded. And when it exploded, this is also our experience, right? Usually little bits and bobs in your room, they just randomly explode. <laughs> and, and when this chunk exploded, it created laws. It somehow created laws. It created planets, and, and the planets had laws of gravity, and laws of motion, and there were all these laws of physics and mathematics that we can study. And these laws caused suffering. Somehow the, the way it exploded and the way the first cell, you know, got hit by electricity on this particular planet and started becoming alive, somehow in that was things like disease. Now, somehow the one little bit of matter became alive and then gradually morphed over genetic mutations or whatever into giraffes and palm trees and marigolds and gorillas and... You know, some of the things it morphed into were like viruses and bacteria and parasites because it just did. You know, it just did. And, and somehow this little chunk, the little thing that became alive, also eventually died. And somehow it morphed into creatures with emotions, which are just this bothersome thing. That have feelings of sadness and grief and pain. Somehow it evolved into pain. We don't know why. So what's their way of dealing, the people who have this philosophy, which is a pretty depressing philosophy, by the way. Uh, what's their way of dealing with the miseries? How do they deal with the miseries? This is the society we live in. How do people try to deal with the miseries of life? Drugs. Drugs? Okay, that's specific. Like, what's the big category? We're going to overcome the laws of nature. So if everything's caused by the laws of nature, you're going to overcome miseries by understanding those laws and trying to overcome them. Does that make sense? They're just sort of random laws. So can everybody move up like about this much? So if there's just these random laws, that's fine. That's fine. Then if there's just these random laws, then we just have to figure out how the laws work and then we can counteract them. If you figure out how old age works, you know, what's, this is what they're doing. They're seeing how do, how do the cells become old? Okay, then we can reverse the process. You know, why does, it, why does a 
organic being die, okay, then we can just fiddle with the laws. And this is what they're doing. Isn't this what they're doing? You know, why do plants get sick? Well, we'll do genetic engineering, and we'll, we'll engineer a plant that doesn't get sick, and we'll engineer a person that doesn't get sick, and we'll mess with the laws of nature. Have they been terribly successful with this? No, I mean, they've been successful with a few things. They've eradicated smallpox and, and polio, and then they've created other things, of course. You know, they've created mobile phones and refrigerators and <laughs> airplanes. And so they, they've contracted some miseries. Right? There's a misery of being away from someone you love. So they've counteracted that a little bit. You can video call them every day. So they, they appear and they say, well, just see, we've done that. And we've created antibiotics. And, you know, pretty soon we'll have figured out all the laws of nature and have counteracted them. Of course, they've also caused a lot of problems. Correct? The science and technology caused a lot of problems. All right. So then the next theory that Dharma the Bull brings out is the law of karma and reincarnation. So now you still have a universal law, but now it's a universal law run by people instead of just some mechanical something that you don't, you know, that's just happening by chance, explosion. It's a law run by a person, run by God, run by the demigods, that says, you know, that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. What you do has a reaction, and if you do bad things, then the reaction is that you suffer. If you do wrong things, the reaction is that you suffer. Hmm? All right. I think we're very familiar with this one. And how do you try to counteract this one, if this is your understanding of suffering? Do good things. What's the problem with that? Seems pretty straightforward. Just do good things, not do bad things. Things have reactions. Even good things have reactions. And even the reactions to good things involve some suffering. So even if you only do good things and you become a great demigod, even on the higher planets there's still some difficulty. Also, is it possible to do only good things? Pretty hard. It's pretty hard. Because with the bad things we do, some of them are unknowing. Have you ever hurt somebody without any knowledge that you hurt them at all? Like absolute zero? So I had this experience one time when I was, uh, when I was running the Gurukula. One of our teachers asked for some papers for teaching bhajans. So I photocopied the papers for him, and I put them in a used envelope, and I put that on his desk. And the next day he came to me and said, I, I have to leave the school. I have, to, you know, I have to get out of here immediately. And I said, oh, why? And he said, well, the, the tax agency is, is looking for me. Hmm. I haven't been paying my taxes, and now they're after me. I said, oh, I'm really sorry about that. How did you find out about that? He said, well, there was that envelope on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out it was an envelope from the tax agency that I had reused to stick the papers in. So I had been the source of his anxiety. You know, this poor guy, he had gotten to see this. He didn't even open it. You know, he just saw this envelope from the tax agency with his name on it, and he felt so much anxiety. So sometimes we give anxiety to others. With, with no idea that we're causing anxiety to others. Absolutely no idea. You know, we, we say something lightly and something else, somebody misunderstands it. Right? I mean, I had another, another time where at our school I said, I, I'm, I'm really not feeling well. I just saved the lunch for me. I'll eat it later. You know, I'm going to go to the temple shop and get something. I'll be back later. We had a couple kids who had just come there from South America, from Brazil, and they didn't speak English very well, and their mother was the cook. 
And they thought I said, I don't want to eat this brusada, I don't want to eat this cookie, it makes me sick, I'd rather go buy something from the shop. <laughs> and they told their father that, it was a whole thing in the community, and the parents were going around saying that I had offended, I had insulted the mother in front of the children, it was a whole. It took about three months to get it sorted. <laughs> so sometimes we offend people without even knowing that we have no intention, no idea, completely unconsciously. Right? But unfortunately there's some reaction. You know, like where we have some reaction if we just step on ants. Right? There's, that's why there's these five sacrifices the house owners are supposed to do for these sort of unintentional, unknowing. And then we offend people, we hurt people knowingly, but we sort of, with some regret, but we think, well, we don't know what to do about it. You know, we're thinking, I have to get this done, I have to accomplish this. In order to accomplish this, I'm going to have to cause some pain to somebody. I wish I didn't have to, but oh well. What do they call that? Collateral damage. Right? It's not our intention. Our intent, we have this goal in mind. Just like if you go to India, people push you. Yes, you've had this experience. They're trying to get somewhere, and to get somewhere, they push you. They're not, they, they didn't think, you know, ah, I hate that person. <laughs> and no, they think it. They just want to get someplace, and you happen to be in the way. You know? And they, they probably know, and I hope they know, on some level, that it's sort of distressing to be pushed. But, it, it, you know, they just figure, what can I do? You're in the way. I just have to push you. So we also hurt people like that, and we're also responsible for that, because we're not supposed to hurt people in order to accomplish something. And then there's a the last way, which we tend to think we don't do very much, but we probably do a lot more than we think. And that is where we intentionally hurt people to hurt people where our, our purpose is to hurt the person. You know, this happens a lot in uh, family arguments, where people intentionally, knowingly say something that will hurt the other person for the purpose of hurting the other person. Uh, thinking that if I hurt the other person, it'll somehow motivate them to change, or motivate them to do what I want, and so forth and so on. And, uh, then, of course, this goes to all sorts of criminal activity. So therefore, it's very hard to just be good. It's very, very hard. There's some people who just leave society and they live on a mountaintop and they don't, you know, the uh, Mahavir of the Jains. So he wandered naked and he didn't interact with society at all with this concept that I'm not going to do any bad thing. No matter what anybody did to him, he didn't respond. But that's pretty hard. And as I say, even if you do only good things, you still get another birth. All right? Then some people say the cause of our suffering is just the will of God. Somehow God is intentionally putting suffering in our life for some good purpose. And we don't understand it. We don't understand his, his purpose. We don't understand his thinking. But we're just going to trust him that when he gives us suffering in our life, that he has some reason. So it's not a reaction to something bad we've done. It's just he's doing it. So who particularly preaches this philosophy? The Christians. Definitely, to some extent, the Muslims, the Jews. This is the, ma the major religions of the world, other than Hinduism and Buddhism, are mostly preaching this philosophy. That God is, is causing us suffering in our life, we don't know why, but we're going to trust that he knows what he's doing. That it has some, some purpose, it has some lesson to it. And what do these people do? How do they respond to suffering? Hmm? Atonement. Atonement? Atonement would be if you think you've done something wrong. So atonement would also be a proper response for the karma and reincarnation one. 
Yes. Krishna's plan. They just say it's Krishna's plan, yes. So then what, what do you do if you say that I haven't done anything wrong? I haven't committed any sin, but God is simply doing this to his plan. So then how do you respond to that? What's your way of responding if that's your philosophy? Just kind of accept it. Right? Which is very similar to the it's inscrutable people. So the first category of people who just say it's inscrutable. They just try to accept it and see the good. So these people also have a very similar response. A very, very similar response with the difference in that they're seeing there's some love behind it. Whereas just the inscrutable people, they, don't, they can't see there's love behind it. And then what's being brought out here in the Bhagavatam is there isn't any suffering. It just doesn't exist. It's not real. You're not experiencing it. It's not happening to you. What is the main group that propound this philosophy? The Maya bodies and the? What's the big religion in the world that teaches this philosophy? The Buddhists. Now, frankly, all of these are true. We can't really understand why we're suffering. It's inscrutable. They're all just laws of nature that if you violate them cause suffering. Just like there's a door and a wall. If you walk into the wall, you will suffer. (laughs) There's no person who's making you suffer if you walk into a wall. You know, the architect, the builder, they didn't design the wall for the purpose of suffering. So there are material laws, and if you know to walk in the door instead of in the wall, you're not going to suffer. If you wash your hands, you're not as likely to get sick. Right? Then there is a law of karma and reincarnation, where that our suffering and our enjoyment are coming from our actions. There is also the will of God, which is not understandable to us, and it's also true that we're not really suffering at all. So all of those things are true. The the problem is when you just see one of them. Hmm? When you just see in one way, your response is very one-sided. So as devotees, we work in all of these ways. We walk through doors. We don't like close our eyes and say, Krishna, whatever you want to do to me, and just walk through the wall. Correct? Yes? I hope. (laughs) We wash our hands. No, we, we deal with the physical laws of chemistry, physics, mathematics, biology. We also try to live lives as much as possible in sattva so that we're not accumulating bad karma. Uh, we try to avoid, we, there's so many lists of good qualities that the devotees have, so many lists of proper behavior for the devotees. Right, and the uh, Ishopanishad in text 10, I believe, Prabhupada gives a list of pious actions that should be done by the devotees, quoting from Bhishma. We try to have the divine qualities listed in 16, 1 through 3, and so forth. We also try to accept Krishna's will in our life. This is one of the main, you know, uh, slogans in the Hare Krishna movement. Well, Prabhu, it's Krishna's arrangement. Krishna is doing it for your purification. It may not be your karma, but Krishna is purifying you, right? This is one of our Hare Krishna cliches. And so, and we try to accept that Krishna is benevolent, he's doing it for my own purpose, for my own benefit, and at the same time, we also have this view in today's verse, that it's not happening at all. It's just not happening. That the reason I'm suffering is only due to my 
What? Hmm? Illusion. My, and what, what's my illusion coming from? Ignorance. I just don't know. I don't know that it's not me. I think it's me. And the example given is like a dream. And the, the, the Bhagavatam frequently gives this example of a dream. It's going to give another example in the next verse, which is also very frequently given. So in a dream, you think you're suffering. Have we, we've all had bad dreams. Yes, you've had bad dreams. Have you had bad dreams? When I was a little kid, I used to often dream I was falling. And sometimes I'd wake up on the floor. Very frequently, I would dream that I was falling. I remember also, as a little kid, dreaming that I was being chased by people with guns. You know, or sometimes you dream you're being chased by animals. Prophet talks about this a lot, that a man in his sleep is calling out, save me from the tiger, save me from the tiger. And someone in the room is like, there's no tiger, you're just in your bed. So these are bad dreams. Or we dream that we're in public, improperly dressed, or something like that. That's a very common human. It's almost a universal human dream. So we have these dreams that we're in distress. But it's not, it's not real. Or, you know, another very common human dream is that you're late for an exam or you haven't studied for an exam. So anyone who's been to school tends to have that kind of a dream. My father told me that was a recurring dream that he had, that he was going to a French exam and he hadn't studied for it and he was late. Yeah. And in the dream, you feel great anxiety. Oh, I haven't studied, I haven't failed the exam. And, you know, you may wake up perspiring, yes? You know? Yeah. Oh, it's only one in the morning. But I don't want to go back to sleep. <laughs> uh, so it's a dream. In a dream, you experience it as if it's happening, but it's not, it's not, there's no exam. There's no tiger. There's no gun. There's no hill that you fell from. You know? And your best friend didn't die. None of those things happened. You didn't get lost somewhere. You know, you didn't go to work without clothes. I mean, none of these things happened. And it just, it just wasn't real. It was something. Something was happening. There was some electric impression in the brain, but there was nothing actually happening. And I think in the modern day, we can compare this also to computer games and movies. That people go to movies, and they identify with the character. And when the character is in danger, your heartbeat goes up, perspiring. When the character is happy, you feel happy. That's why people go to movies. They want to experience those emotions. Or computer games is, is even deeper illusion, where you, you create this character and you manipulate the character, and the character is, you know, gets the treasure and you feel happy, and the character is, you know, and gets hurt and you feel sad. You know, I've been around teenagers playing computer games. They'll, they'll actually talk to each other in their names in the game, you know. And Oh, yeah, you know, I got really injured this morning. <laughs> of course, Krishna's illusion is deeper than that. I'm sure that if the filmmakers and the computer game players could find a way to make the illusion, you know, complete, they would do it. I'm sure they're working on it. You know, they make these, uh, Sadhguru used to talk about this, how they make these virtual reality glasses you can put on. And then you really believe that you are in the simulation, that you are that character. Of course, as I say, with modern science, you always retain some sense of your real identity. 
You don't fully forget that you're in the chair in the theater. You don't fully forget that you're in the chair in your room. Huh? Uh, but you can be almost. You can be almost. But in Krishna's illusion, it's, it's much more complete. Of course, it's not absolutely complete. It's not absolutely complete. Srila Prabhupada gives the example that the reason we think a mirage is water is because we have a real experience of water. So when you're doing things in an illusion, there's no satisfaction. That's like when you have a happy dream. Is it really satisfying? I think the example was, so one, one time on a fast day, I was fasting from food and water, and I took a little rest, and in my dream, I was eating a feast. <laughs> but I was really thirsty, so I was drinking water also, and I had a big jug, big gallon jug of water, and I was pouring in my dream, cup after cup after cup after cup, and finally in my dream, I picked up the whole jug, and I was drinking it. And then, you know, sometimes you have this happen in a dream, called lucid dreaming, where all of a sudden I thought, I must be dreaming. And I woke up. You know, in the dream it was like, well, why isn't the water satisfying me? You know, you don't have a situation where you're drinking cup after cup after cup after cup after cup and you're still overwhelmingly thirsty. Oh, it's a dream. It must be dream water. So this happens in our normal life also. You know, if we buy into the modern society's idea that if I want to be happy, what do I have to do in modern society to be happy? I have to go to a good school. Must be a good school. I have to get a degree from a good school. Can't just be any school. I have to get a degree in some top field. I can't just get a degree in flower arranging. You know, get a degree in engineering or medicine or something like that. It has to be a very high prestige occupation. And then I have to find a very attractive spouse. I have to have a beautiful home. And I have to have some children. Not too many. <laughs> and they also have to be very attractive and healthy and intelligent. And they have to go to good schools. And they have to get very high status jobs. I have to be able to say, yes, my son is a lawyer. My daughter is a doctor, right? <laughs> and then I have to have at least one flat screen TV, maybe two. You know, I have to have a Jaguar and BMW in the garage. I probably have to get a dog. You know, so I do all of that. And then you look around and you say, is that all there is? <laughs> I'm sure we've all experienced that in this world, that we did something that we were promised would give us fulfillment. We were promised, you do this, it'll make you happy. And we did it. And maybe it was even nice. Maybe there was some pleasure in it, but still we'd say, is that, that's it? Is that as good as it gets? That's like the best? Yes, everybody's had this experience? Yes. yes. Go to this restaurant, they have the best food, so you go in there, eat there, and you feel unlimitedly satisfied in all respects. You know, you get your the best romantic partner or whatever. And then people say, oh, maybe I married the wrong person, maybe that's the problem. You know? Nowadays, maybe I married the wrong gender person. That's <laughs> maybe I got the wrong house. Maybe I got the wrong breed of dog. Maybe I didn't go to the right school. You know. But whatever you do, you do it, and then you say, "That's it." Is that, is that it? You know, it's like you work really, 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 really hard, and just you just little drop. 
So that's an, an indicator to us that it's dream water. That you're drinking, 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 and you're still thirsty. That you do all these things. This is why sometimes very wealthy, famous, beautiful, intelligent, powerful people commit suicide. Or take drugs. Why do they do that? They have everything that the society is saying. But it's all a dream. It's all a dream. It's kind of like taking a photograph. You take a photograph, here you are with your beautiful family, meeting the prime minister or something, you know, at Disneyland, next to your car, like they show in the advertisements. You know, an advertisement for like a car, and you're in front of this mansion with your happy family and your dog in the car. And you look at it and say, see? See how happy I am? See? But you're not experiencing anything. Or your experience is very, very slight. Very, very slight. And then there's all these problems. Then you have to fix the plumbing in the car, in the house. And you have to fix the exhaust in the car. And you have to pay for the petrol and the insurance. And somebody scratches it and you're, you know. <laughs> so these are the little indications that what's happening is not real. It's real in the sense that it's happening. Like a dream is real that something's happening. There's electrical impulses in the brain that can be measured. Something's happening. In the movies, something's happening. There's lights on a screen. Lights flicker in those. Or you could say that at some time in the past, there were actors taking a role. So something was happening. Or a computer game, something's happening. There's electricity. There's metal and plastic. There's ones and zeros. Something. But it's not what it appears to be. Therefore, it's mine. So we don't say this world is false in the sense that it doesn't exist, but it's false in the sense that what's happening to us apparently is not happening to us. And of course, Krishna says this in the Bhagavad Gita. He says in 5, 8 to 9, he said, apparently, this, it, we know we're eating, sleeping, evacuating, sitting, standing. He said, but it's just the senses interacting with their objects and the self is doing nothing. He says this again in chapter 13, text 30. He says the soul does nothing. And in chapter 3, text 27, he says, Ahankara vimudhatma kartaham iti manyate. Vimudhatma, you're a fool. If you think I'm doing anything in this world. And the first part of illusion is time. That by my action, I cause a certain reaction. I am the doer. I am the doer. It's fine, as long as he's not screaming. It's fine. That may be me in 50 years. <laughs> so this is the reality. We are not doing anything in this world. At all. We're only the what? Instruments. We're only the observer. We're just the observer. It's exactly like a dream or a film. In the dream, you are just the observer. You're not actually doing anything. In a film, you're just the observer. You know, and in a film, you, you kind of order it. You say, well, I want to see a drama. I want to see a thriller. I want to see a horror movie. I want to see a romantic. And then the director, the producer, they create a, a movie that they think you're going to want to see. And then at this point, you laugh. At this point, you cry. At this point, you're scared. And this is exactly what Mayan has done. By our desires and our karma, we are ordering a particular experience. We're placing an order. 
So my aid is looking at it and saying, all right, you've done this and this and this and this and this. You have all these desires. Okay, we're going to custom make a little story for you. And at this point in the story, you're going to get angry. At this point in the story, you're going to get sad. At this point in the story, you're going to do this. At this point, you have a choice. You can do all these different things. You ever read those books, Choose Your Own Adventure? Mm-hmm. At a certain point, you can choose. At this point, I said, okay, now you can make a choice and do the story. And then we become puppets of the modes. You can see this with grossly materialistic persons. They're just reacting. The modes say, laugh, and they laugh. And the modes say, get angry, and they get angry. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And uh, this is our, our position. So our, our agency, our free will, once we're in illusion, is just what kind of story do I want to be involved in? And even that, we're doing impartial ignorance. We don't really know. We think we might like this kind of story. Like people might think they want to see a particular movie, but then they see it and they don't like it. Or they think they want to play a game and they play it and they don't like it. They say, oh, this wasn't what I wanted. So, one sort of side point, and I think it's really a side point for us, although Prabhupada's making very strongly in this purported vision of Chakrabani Thakur also in his commentary talks about this, is saying that we're just the observer does not mean that we are all God and that we are covered by ignorance and when the ignorance gets removed again we're God. But that's not what this, this verse in the Bhagavatam means. So that's not the solution. Because sometimes when people say, like the Buddhists and the Mayavadis, who also have this philosophy of suffering, that, that, that the suffering is not really happening. They say the solution is, well, actually, you're God, and you just have to remember that you're God. So no, what we really are is Jivaraswarupaya Krishna and Nichidasa. We really are a servant of God. And that's what we've forgotten, and that's the cure. And Prabhupada, very, in a heavy way, I think, makes the point that you're still a servant. You haven't stopped being the servant of God. Even if we're imagining that I become the Lord of everything, I, I become the Lord of my room in the Brahmacharya Ashram, or I become the Lord of a palace uh, with 10 million wives and 3,000 servants, or whatever we think we're the Lord of, I become a Lord of a multinational corporation. That's still we're servants. You know, you may, you may be the Lord of a multinational corporation and you may have, you know, all these people adoring you and praising you and people that just jump at your command, but you still need to use the bathroom. <laughs> you know, when nature calls, you can't say, sorry, I'm not going. You still need to drink water, you still need to sleep, and you still are reacting even emotionally, correct? There is, what materially conditioned soul can say, I'm not going to react emotionally when Meyer says jump? That's like saying, I'm going to enjoy the movie, but I'm not going to react to the movie. Is that possible? Can you have a detachment in one way and not another way? So we become the servants. Even if you're so pious, such good karma, that Maya's created a movie for you, where you have billions of dollars and gazillion servants, you live on a higher planet. When it gets to the point in the movie when Maya says, feel like this, you feel like this. It even happens to Indra. Right? Indra tries to flood Vrindavan, and then he's really sorry, and he says, I won't do it again. And then Krishna comes and, and brings him the earrings and stuff of his mother, 
after he kills Momosura. He says, here, Indra, I've done you a favor. I brought your mother's jewelry back that the demon took. And then Satchabam was like, you know, I really wanted that flower. Krishna, I'll give you the whole tree. I mean, Indra does not support each other trees. He doesn't have only one. And he just, ah, you're taking my tree. And he starts fighting. So this happens even to Indra. It happens even to Brahaspati. That they just become a servant of the external energy. And it's so embarrassing, isn't it, to be a servant of the external energy? I mean, it's so embarrassing. You're know, doing all the saying and thinking all these things are like, oh, I didn't do that. Why did I see that? Why did I think that? Yes, am I the only one who has this experience? So therefore, we're servants. So why do we want to be a servant in illusion? First of all, illusion is just not a terribly good master. We end up doing things that we don't want to do. This was Arjuna's question to Krishna in the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Why do I do things that I don't even want to do? I feel like I'm being forced. And Krishna says, it's your own lust. Yes, you are being forced, but you're the one who wanted to be forced. Yes, the movie does force you to laugh at a certain point, but that's because you wanted to see the movie and you wanted to experience the emotions of the characters. That was your desire. You wanted to take the drug and then the drug makes you act crazy. But you wanted to take the drug. You intentionally drank the alcohol. So that's it's not a very good master. And our service to Krishna in the illusion doesn't bring us happiness. Like your service to the government in the prison doesn't bring you happiness. You're still serving the government in the prison. But it's not, it's not in a way that's, that's favorable. It's not in a way that brings you any kind of happiness. And because it's all illusion, none of the things we're enjoying have any depth to them. None of them is, they're not touching us. Like Robin said, the bird in the cage. You know, you're cleaning the cage and you're not feeding the bird. So why can't we just get rid of this illusion by saying, well, it's not real, it's not real, it's not real? Because we want to enjoy the illusory pleasures, that's why. That's the problem. It just doesn't work. You can't say, well, I, I, I'm going to experience the suffering as illusion, but I'm going to experience the pleasures as real. First of all, that's not the rules of Maya. And the second of all, it's not even logical. The only way to realize that we're an observer is to not want to enjoy the illusion either. To not want to identify with the illusion at all. And the only way to do that is to identify with the reality. So the Buddhists and the Maya bodies who understand that this stuff isn't really happening, they just say, don't identify with anything. Or think that you're God. So the Maya bodies say, think that you're God, which doesn't work. I'm not God. I don't know about any of you. I mean, you're all very attractive people, but none of you probably look like God. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 You know, but we're, so we're not God, so that doesn't work. And just to say, I'm not going to identify with anything, that's not very satisfying. Do I want to become nothing? I mean, maybe at some moments when we're really suffering, just let it all go away and let it be nothing. But that's not what we really want. We don't really want nothing. You can be in a room with nothing, no furniture and you get to eat nothing, and you get to drink nothing, and you get to see no... That's called solitary confinement. That's like a really heavy punishment for people. But that's not what we want. So our solution is to identify with the real. Jivara Sarabhaya Krishna Nityadasa. 
I am a servant of Krishna. And I am a servant to Krishna. I am a servant to Krishna. Even in illusion, even the nastiest criminals are servants of Krishna. Even if you want to kill a hundred people just for fun, Krishna will give you a hundred people that deserve to be killed. So you're doing Krishna's business. I want to kill a hundred. I want to enjoy killing a hundred people. Okay, well, here's a hundred people that that's what they that, that that's what needs to happen. So you can go do my job for me, Krishna. Even the criminals are serving Krishna. Even the atheists are serving. Everyone is serving Krishna. Even people preaching atheistic philosophy, that's what some people want to believe. I want to find some way to forget God. Okay. I want to preach that there's no God. Okay, preach it to that person. <laughs> so everybody's doing Krishna's will. Everybody's working within Krishna's scheme. You, you can't. Who has the power to work out of Krishna's will? One very good argument I read against the existence of a devil it said, well, it's very strange because the devil is punishing people in hell for breaking the laws of God. Therefore, he must be one of God's people. And how can he be a devil? You know, if, if I want to hurt somebody, I can only hurt somebody who's destined to be hurt under the laws of karma. How can I hurt somebody who's not destined to be hurt under the laws of karma? Then God isn't all powerful. So I'm already a Christian servant. Why not be his servant in a nice, friendly way? And why not experience in reality all this that I'm trying to enjoy in illusion? And one time we had some guests at our house and their teenage son was playing video games. All day he didn't even come to eat. So Krishna's saying, stop eating illusion food. Come eat real food. He's not saying stop eating illusion food and fast. That's not what Krishna's saying. Krishna's not saying fast. No food. He's saying, have the real thing. You know, and this kid didn't want to leave. I just need to finish the game. I just need to finish the game. I need to get this other thing. It's like, it's just a game. It's just ones and zeros. You're not getting any real treasure. Why don't you go, you know, make some real money? We have this Arda Bina. So Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says a wonderful verse at the very end of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. He says, Premadana Bina Vyarta. So instead of Arda Bina, it's so prema dana, what does dana mean? Wealth. Prema is love. The love of the wealth of love. Prema dana bina vyarta. Without the wealth of love, vyarta. There's no purpose, there's no goal. Yes, useless. Useless. Daridra jivana. Daridra means what? Poor. Jiva means life. Jivan, life. You have a poor life. This verse is saying you have, your, your life is useless. It has no meaning. Premadana bina vyarta daridra jivana. Without love of God, life is just, it's just useless. It's completely useless. There's no meaning to it. And just like there's no meaning to just dreaming. If you spent all your life just dreaming. Suppose you, did, suppose you have a life where all you do is just dream your whole life. Would that be useful? Would, have, would that life have any value? Would there be any value? As long as we're in material consciousness, that's exactly what our life is. It's just a big dream. Except it's a collective dream. Kind of like a computer game where everyone's playing the same game and they're all thinking or having it. But it's just a dream. Does anything done in the dream have any value? 
I can be. Then Mahaprabhu says, Dasakori Vekanmuri. Dasakori. Please, I, I've come for a job. I'm applying for a job. I want to be a servant. Vekanmuri. Vekan means? Wages. Wages. Salary. Sometimes we have big arguments. So devotees get wages. But Mahaprabhu says, I want some wages. I come for a job as a servant. And I want wages. Vekanmuri. Deva Premadana. Please give me the wealth of love of God. That's the salary that I want. So we should see, if I'm looking for pleasure anyway, I'm working hard for pleasure anyway, why not work for real pleasure? I'm working so hard. Are we working so hard for illusory pleasure? I mean, really hard? Why not do that same effort for real pleasure? I'm serving Krishna anyway. I'm following Krishna's plan anyway. Krishna's plan is what works out in the end anyway. Why not work cooperatively with it? And why not? I want meaning anyway. Everybody wants a meaningful life. Anybody want a useless life? Anybody? When you die, they'll write in the newspaper, so-and-so led a totally useless life. (laughs) So we want meaning. We want to have value in our life. We want everything we do to have. Why not have a life of value? And when we do that, then the suffering goes away. So this was a question asked the other day. That don't did you ask this? That you don't the pure devotees also suffer? Are you the one who asked the question? No, somebody was someone in the back and you were sitting in the back. Don't the pure devotees also suffer? No, because now all the suffering is an illusion. They don't suffer. All the suffering in this world is just an illusion. They're not experiencing any suffering. They're able to perceive that they're the observer and it's just an illusion, but nor are they trying to enjoy the world. What they're enjoying is being Krishna's servant, and they're enjoying falling in love with Krishna. So although this illusion is very difficult to overcome, Prabhupada ends this purport with just the Sanskrit, not even a translation, deviation in my email mind, Duratiya. This illusion is very powerful. It's much more powerful than anything the scientists have come up with. So it's really, really, really powerful. It's so powerful that it can go on life after life after life after life. But then, mayam eva yegupatente, mam eva yegupatente, mayam eta tarantite. Tara means to cross over. To cross over. You can cross over very easily. This illusion seems so powerful, like a big ocean. So we're right by the ocean. I'm sure everyone here has seen the Pacific Ocean. It's a big ocean. I mean, it's a really big ocean. Even just, you know, going across the ditch to New Zealand is a big ocean. What to speak of if you were going to go, you know, all the way to South America, or all the way to California, or even up to Fiji or something. It's a big ocean. And the whole material illusion seems like that. You say, oh, I love mean, well, you just saying it's not real, but it's so real to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. It's like this big ocean. But the demigods say, there's a boat. And they say something magical happens when you go toward the boat. You don't even have to get in the boat. You just have to walk toward the boat. What's the magical thing that happens when you walk toward the boat? 
closer to your Well, something changes in dimension. The ocean is reduced. The ocean becomes reduced. To how small? To the footprint of a calf. Footprint of a calf. So we don't generally see too many calves running around in Melbourne, so maybe we don't relate to that. But you can say a big dog. <laughs> so a, a big dog running on the sand and makes an impression. So how big is the footprint of a big dog? Maybe like this big? And when it rains, that, that footprint gets filled up with water. Do you have to take any notice to cross it? Do you have to, like, pick up your clothes? Do you have to do any effort to cross over the amount of water that's in the footprint made by a large dog? You don't even notice it. So we see this illusion is vast and insurmountable and, and just, but if we surrender to Krishna, it becomes nothing. And I think that all of us have experienced this with certain parts of the illusion energy. So I'm sure that all of us had things that we thought were insurmountable. We'd never be able to be detached from them. We'd never be able to give them up. When people first start coming to Krishna consciousness, the main thing they talk about is friends and relatives. What will I do with this friend or relative who's not a devotee, doesn't support me? How will I deal with this? And generally, after a few years in the movement, people don't even talk about that anymore. In fact, they even forget that it was a problem. It's become like the water in a calf's footprint, that it was this huge ocean, it's become nothing. And I'm sure there are many material attachments that for us were nothing to give up. I'm sure for, that for you know, any of us who used to eat meat, we don't drive past a McDonald's like, oh, I want it. It's nothing. We don't even notice. There's not, not even an awareness. Whereas other people may say, oh, how can you not eat meat? So difficult. I know people that go for years trying to be vegetarian. I'm sure we can think of so many things in our Krishna conscious journey that seem like insurmountable illusions and insurmountable attachments. We looked at them and said that, you know, it's just not going to be possible for me to give that up. It's not going to be possible for me to go beyond it. And now we're so far beyond it, we don't even remember that we had it. We don't even remember that it was a problem. We get reminded when someone else comes to us with that problem and they say, I really have a problem with this. And we might think, oh yeah, I did too. Oh yeah. And sometimes we may even look at them and say, well, that's not a problem. This happens a lot. You go to somebody with your problem and they say, that's not a problem. So these, these are little indicators from Krishna that the whole thing can become like that. Not just little bits. Not just some little bit. But everything can become like that. That it becomes so easy to cross that you don't even know you're crossing it. You're hardly even aware that you're crossing it. And and you forget that you even had it. It becomes something, just some dim memory. Like a dream. Exactly like a dream. You know, you have some dream that you have this problem and that problem and the other problem and I forgot my clothes and I didn't study for my test and, and then you wake up and you can't even remember. You're like, I, I had a bad dream. Or what was it about? Uh, I'm not sure. wasn't a good dream. So that is our Krishna consciousness. 
Thank you very much. Questions, comments, additions, subtractions? Yes, Tim. Thank you for the class. So, is the solution to suffering knowing that it's an illusion? It's a question inside my main question. Yes. Okay, so. Well, it's all those things because all of those points of Dharma the Bill brought up reveal. So, it's all those. But yes. So, I'm sure many people have the experience whether a spouse is complaining about a difficult death and like they're, suffer, they're suffering. And the solution, you know the solution. It's an illusion. <laughs> but you don't want to just say that. Mm. Yes, it's, if you go to somebody who's suffering and say, well, the real problem is your suffering is not even real. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'll, get, you'll, you'll get the opposite response to that which you want to get. Well, what's, what's really fascinating is that the, the main way to convince somebody of something is first to kind of agree with them and be with them. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? I really, really try to feel with them what they're feeling. Because then the person, what? They trust you. It's kind of like first you've got to hold someone's hand before you can pull them out. You try to pull them out and you're not holding their hand. First, it's not effective. I mean, even, I didn't start this class talking about love and God. I talked about it at the end. Even if you're talking to devotees, Strict, core, second-initiated, strictly practicing devotees in the Hare Krishna movement, and you start off a class by saying, okay, so everybody wants love of God, right? You really are not going to have their attention. <laughs> because that's not what people are thinking about, generally, some person. But generally, no. People are thinking about, what am I going to do with this other person in the ashram who's driving me crazy? <laughs> You know, what am I going to do about the fact that I don't have enough money? What am I going to do about my back that keeps hurting? That's really what they're thinking about. Or even they may be thinking about something like, I need to be more attentive in my jhana. Or, you know, I really have a problem with sexual thoughts. These are more of the things that people are thinking. i got to read more often. Most of us are not thinking, I've got to love Krishna. I've really got to love I've just got to fall in love with Krishna. I've got to become so attracted to Krishna. <laughs> <laughs> so if you start off saying, okay, we're going to have a class on how to fall in love with Christian people, they're not So first you have to go where they are, which is one reason why the Bhagavatam gives all these benedictions. you ever wonder about that? If you hear this story, you, you won't have any enemies. You know, if you hear this story, you'll become wealthy. You hear this story, you oh, okay, I'll hear this story. <laughs> So Prabhupada often will say, we are really suffering in the material world. Yeah. <laughs> you thought? Often. How often does Prabhupada say, you know, this world is not even suffering? He doesn't usually start out with by saying, you know, really none of you are really suffering. It's all just an illusion. <laughs> Somebody else? 
Yes. Uh, yes, we have spent so much time in in this world trying to enjoy it. Um, when it comes to Krishna consciousness, or when you're trying to practice yoga, sometimes that feels like a dream because having spent so much time <coughs> trying to enjoy it. Which feels like a dream? Like our practicing Krishna consciousness. Well, it's just such a short. It'll, it'll switch. It'll switch. My life before Krishna consciousness seems very dreamlike to me. Oh, I was also thinking, like Krishna says to Arjuna, he says, for one who's been honored, dishonor is worse than death. Arjuna's like, yeah. And then Krishna says, be detached from honor and dishonor. <laughs> he doesn't say that first. Be, get, get absorbed in the reality of Krishna consciousness. Don't be absorbed in the don't be absorbed in Krishna consciousness superficially. Be absorbed in, in Krishna consciousness in a deep way. I mean, really try to, to get attached to Krishna. To Krishna. Or depending on your personal taste, to Guranga Mahaprabhu or to Jagannath or to the Singha Day or this. As you as you will personally try. Try and become absorbed. Yes? My question is, uh, uh, what is the purpose of Krishna in proposing uh, the, uh, the formula of Nishkam Karma Yoga, understanding the nature of this world, uh, and in contrast to then later on offering uh, devotional service, the path of devotional service, uh, which is the, which has substance. Okay, well the first thing I'm going to say is that you may not like this. There's nothing in any commentary of Prabhupada Acharya that talks about Nishkam Karma Yoga. Karma Yoga is Nishkam Karma. So, karma Yoga and Nishkam Karma are the same thing. If you're doing Sakam, then it's Karma Kanda. If you're doing Nishkam, then it's Karma Yoga. It's karma palatyaga. You're doing karma for the sake of with, with giving of the fruits. So why does Krishna recommend any other process besides bhakti yoga? I think is your main question. Yes. Why does Krishna talk about karma yoga, jnana yoga, and dhyana yoga? Why doesn't he just talk about bhakti yoga? Well, that's also like asking why are there different religions on the planet, and why are there different external processes and different yugas? I mean, the Bhagavatam says in the Satya Yuga, the mantra was Omkara, not Hare Krishna. The process was meditation. There was no Varnashram, there was only Hamsa. The Supreme Lord was Narayana. So why are there different processes? Because we're different, we're individuals. Some people are just not going to do direct Bhakti Yoga. It doesn't matter how much you tell them they should do it, they're just not. It's not what they're inclined to do. Karma Yoga will work, Jnana Yoga will work. Jnana yoga will work. They're bona fide processes. They're given by the Lord. They're in the Shastra. They're not likely to work so well in the Kali Yuga. You're, you're not very likely to be successful with them. Some people. Some people. I've met some people who are expert in, in Jnana yoga, for example. There, there are some. Our advice is in the Kali Yuga. Hari Nama, Hari Nama, Hari Nama. But they're bona fide processes. 
And if that's what somebody wants, if that's what someone is determined to do, then, then, then they can do it. But Krishna advises against it. He says, He says, but they're, they're there. It's not that they're. It's just like your GPS may offer you more than one route. It may say, you know, this is the shortest route, this is the scenic route. Yes? And then different people have different needs and different inclinations at different times. Some people are up there. Some people are only going to accept, let's speak of karma yoga, some people are only going to accept karma kanda. Most of the religions on this planet are just teaching karma kanda, and I'm teaching karma yoga. Little, little, little bit. Most religious systems on the planet today are teaching rajagun, which is karma kanda. With a little bit of sattva maybe. But most religions on the planet today are teaching be a good person, be a good citizen, take nice care of your family, pay your taxes, worship God, and enjoy the world by the grace of God. That is straight on religion and karma. And, you know, be forgiving and kind and loving so that God will bestow his mercy on you and you'll become, you know, happy in the world. And some of them preach... Be forgiving and kind and loving so you'll feel equal balance and happy within and you'll get liberated and you'll get salvation. That's sattva But some people won't do more than that. Have you ever tried preaching to people really in sattva guru and they're just not interested in bhakti? A lot of the people in the yoga movement are like that. We're forgiving. We're equal balance. We're kind. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not doing it for the accolades of the world we don't care about the world we're not doing it for money we're interested in just whatever we need to get by we don't want fame we just love that internal feeling of being peaceful and you go to have you ever tried preaching those people sometimes it's harder than preaching to people in Tamil. At least you go to somebody in Tamil and you say, your life's really miserable. Oh my God. Is it miserable? Well, take some prasad, Jedi Krishna, okay. And you go to someone in Sattva and you say, life is miserable. Like, oh. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> 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 I'm equal poised. That's what they want. What are you going to do? And then you say, okay. And you do dhyana yoga. Unfortunately, not everybody will take the highest thing. No, this is really revolutionary. I hope they invite me back. Do, do you think that every single person in our Hare Krishna movement is engaged in pure bhakti? No, no. It's an individual thing. Do you think that every single person in our Hare Krishna movement is engaged in pure bhakti? No. no. Do you think even all of our initiated devotees are engaged in pure bhakti? No. We have a lot of karma nusha bhakti and gyanusha bhakti what? Do we have people in our movement that are performing bhakti mixed with tamagun? Oh yeah, I've met some. I've been there too myself. Do we have people doing bhakti mixed with rajagun? And with sattva Sure. 
So therefore, one of the qualifications of bhakti is it's rarely achieved. Now, what's nice about the Hare Krishna movement is we have a whole big chunk of people who aren't doing pure bhakti. I don't know what the percent is. I've never done a scientific study. But we have a whole lot of people who are doing pure bhakti. A lot, but not everyone. And we even have people who really fight for mixed bhakti. They really push it. How do pure bhakti? Do condemnation bhakti? They don't say it like that and we throw them out, but they, they, that's what they're saying. I gave the example that there's one preacher who was saying, you know, the women can't do pure bhakti. First they have to be good wives and mothers. After they've been good wives and mothers, then they can do pure bhakti. That's karma pure bhakti right there. And the person was preaching in Alavyasasana, and there were people going, Jai. Or people who say, you know, and I've heard this too, you can't think of Krishna first. First, before you think of Krishna, you have to be equipoised and you have to be detached and you have to be very, very pure and then you can think of Krishna. Don't you dare think of Krishna while you're chanting Hare Krishna. They preach like that. In fact, it was on one of my visits to Australia years ago that I had to deal with that. I went to a, a Bhakti Riksha program and a devotee said, oh, so-and-so was just here and he was saying that we better not think of Krishna while we're chanting. Krishna says, think of me all the time. All the time except when you're chanting. <laughs> well, yeah, he told us we weren't many. First we had to become pure. That's Kyanamisha Bhakti. How are you going to become pure? Are you going to become pure by being very detached? Or less dominant, or it's coming more, but less than those two are Yoga Misha Bhakti. People are saying, you know, First, you've got to learn how to meditate. First, you've got to learn how to clear your mind. First, you've got to become detached, and then you can. It looks a lot like Yanisha Bhakti, but it's But we have people preaching this. Anybody who says you cannot think about Krishna and you cannot meditate on Krishna until you are first pure is preaching some kind of mixed Bhakti. Or people who really focus on that the process of purification is Varnashram. Varnashram is not our process of purification. It's something that we use in Krishna service. It's like this microphone is not our process of purification. We're using it in Krishna service. Or anyone who says that detachment and equanimity is our process of purification. They're preaching again. So if that's true, even within our, our own movement of Mahaprabhu and Srila Prabhupada, who are undoubtedly preaching pure bhakti, then how, what more within the world in general? Is there a need for that? You know, to the world in general, not everybody's going to take up here, just not. So, okay. But put some bhakti in it. <laughs> you know, somehow, somehow. Don't just do karma kanda. At least, at least do karma visual bhakti. At least do the end. Krishna's a taste of your wine. Mm-hmm. He said, someday you'll become a saintly person. So 
put Krishna in there somewhere, somehow. You know, get Bhakti in there a little tiny bit. And eventually it will be there. So that's that's the, the Shastras are like that. Okay, you want to do this? Do you want to do add Bhakti? You want the real thing? Okay, feel Bhakti. Is that right? Did you have something you wanted to say? Me? Yeah. Sometimes we're told you have to come to a lot of goodness before you can even practice bhakti. Well, then, depending on how they're telling you, you have to go to the mode of goodness. So if they're telling you the way you get to the mode of goodness is through leading a pious life, then it's karma mission bhakti. If they say the way you get to the mode of goodness is by detachment and being equipoised and so forth, then it's jnana mission bhakti. If they say the way you're going to get to the mode of goodness is by, you know, simplifying your life, living out in the country, doing meditation, and jnana mission so Narada Muni did not say to Magrari the hunter, first you have to come to the mode of goodness and then I'm going to give you bhakti. Hari Dastakuru did not say to the prostitute, first you have to come to the mode of goodness and then I'll give you bhakti. <laughs> they gave him bhakti immediately. Yes, we have to, we will go through the mode of goodness, we will get liberated first, but that will happen from bhakti. Yes, it is true. We will only be able to realize Krishna purely and actually see Krishna face to face when we are first liberated. But it's thinking of Krishna in our non-liberated state that gets us liberated. It's bhakti that will bring us to liberation. And the other things will also bring you to liberation. They also work, but they're harder and slower and they're more troubles. They will work. It's not that they won't work. In this age, maybe they won't work. But at least theoretically, they'll work. But it's a harder... Prophet says, nobody wants the easy thing. They don't want to touch their nose like this, Prophet says. Easy thing. <laughs> and if you tell them, just chant Hare Krishna, think of Krishna, you'll become liberated, you'll become perfect, oh, that's too easy. He said, but if you tell them, stand on your head and pull your ears and dangle your feet upside down and, you know, oh, that must be real. <laughs> Thank you.